This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy, rostering and timesheets without the usual chaos. You know, unfortunately, Anthony, I walk around Melbourne City, as I often do every few days, go for a bit of a wander around, and there's an awful lot of businesses that are still closed. Um, but, you know, depending on your point of view, that also presents an opportunity too for people to think, well, perhaps it might be time for me to take the step and have a, a go at my own vision, my own business, my own dream. This is The Luminaries on the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Opening your own restaurant and making a success of it doesn't happen by simply finding a site and opening the doors. There are many elements at play, both professionally and personally, to ensure great experiences for your clientele, return business, viability and longevity too. You can't control outside forces like a pandemic, but when you focus your attention on the things you can control, the outcomes can be spectacular. What does it take to build a successful restaurant? David McIntosh is an award-winning restaurateur and owner of Leho Fook, Ides, Pope Joan, SP, QR Pizzeria and Out in Tokyo. David, you're pretty busy. Yeah, and, uh, you know, each day that goes by as we make our way back uh, to some version of real life, Anthony, we like to get busier and busier. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've got some incredible venues that you're um, in partnership with all sorts of people um, in different situations that I'd love to explore. But take us back to that moment when you opened your very own first restaurant. What, what was that period of time like? That, um, in terms of opening as a partnership, uh, as a business partner, you know, as somebody who had skin in the game, um, that's 2002 uh, and Movida in Melbourne um, was the first experience for me, you know, as a, as a hands-on partner, Anthony, and it was um, pretty exhilarating, um, but also uh, also kind of full of complete naive, naivety uh, and positivity and bravado, um, confidence, and really very few... Uh, lessons and and I would say straight away that uh, we were very we were very fortunate in the people that we had around us you know we we met a really talented chef in Frank Kamora who at the time was you know a hard-working chef who'd returned from um, reconnecting with family in Spain um, we were with a couple of property development guys who loved eating in restaurants, but who were yet to kind of venture forth into the industry themselves, but were very willing to give uh, young and unknown people a bit of a crack. Um, and, you know, um, those things came together to create a business that initially started out in a small pub in West Melbourne, the Karen Tavern, um, which was this great kind of 1970s building uh, where, um, you know, Frank got to kind of offer the sort of Spanish food that he just didn't think was uh, being offered in Melbourne at the time. And that largely centres around the idea that it is possible to offer tapas menus where we will cook you the tapa fresh rather than plucking it off the top of a bench <laughs> however long after it got made. Um, and dropping the remnant paper on the ground and having a beer and walking off, you know, into the Madrid sunset, so to speak. And, you know, I think in many ways what Frank did there was he actually pioneered what then happened in Spain probably half a dozen years later where they started to actually really think a lot more gastronomically about their kind of tapas scene, really. Um, and But I don't think any of us particularly knew that at the time, we weren't, we weren't kind of that forensic about it. We were sort of, let's offer people the choice of uh, a menu of really delicious Spanish-inspired uh, goodies. Um, and I think we kind of first realised we are onto something because this journalist uh, who was writing 
for the age at the time in the column on the other side of the Tuesday Good Living from the Restaurant Review. There was a guy called Matt Preston doing these $10 kind of sort of short review things. And he wrote about the Karen Tavern and he wrote about Frank and he said, should get down to the Karen Tavern uh, sometime soon and help make Frank become the star he should be or something like that. Yeah. And it was really, I mean, clearly Matt got it very quickly, what was going on with what Frank was trying to do. And quite a few um, restaurant and food people started coming down and tasting it and going, hang on, this is a bit different. And uh, it, it also kind of neatly coincided with, with a time where um, another really important fellow called Scott Wosley kind of started bringing the first lots of really interesting um, contemporary Spanish wines through his business into Australia. So there was this kind of general buzz around. Um, I'm not even sure whether El Bulli and those restaurants were really setting the world on fire. They sort of did around that similar time. So there was that kind of rise of Spanish cuisine globally. But, but Frank was just, you know, doing his thing in the kitchen in a pub in, in West Melbourne. Um, and in a funny kind of way, we didn't learn a whole lot because we got it incredibly right, <laughs> if that makes sense. It just kind of went off like a frog in a sock. Um, and then a, a fellow came by who wanted to buy the pub to do something else with it. So we were faced with that really interesting dilemma of, oh, well, what do we do now? Because this seems to be working and people want to be a part of it, but we can't stay in this building anymore. Uh, and that that's when the sort of crystallizing moment of sitting down and actually working out a business structure and a partnership and what on earth it meant to be a shareholder, uh, where the money was going to come from, signing a terrifying thing called a lease. Uh, you know, really like, my God, we're going to have to come up with $700 every week to pay a landlord, uh, employ all these people, promise to pay them whether we turn over a dollar or not. What days should we be open? What hours should we be open? And again, you know, um, Frank and the guys that were kind of running the, the front of house got together and thought, well, you know, why don't we just open and then we'll close at the end of the day and we won't close at all during the day. Uh, and if it's four o'clock in the afternoon and someone wants uh, a really beautiful plate of food and a really great glass of wine, then why not? And I know that doesn't sound very controversial now, but in, but in 2002, which, um, you know, worryingly is 20 years ago, um, there wasn't much happening on Flinders Lane and there was even less happening down Hosier Lane um, apart from drugs. And uh, the idea that uh, you could kind of take your seat at a bar at any time in the afternoon, somebody would offer you a cold beer or a glass of, I don't know, Austrian Grunewald liner or Yarra Valley Chardonnay and a, a piece of perfect um, potato tortilla or something that the guys had made. Uh, it was it was actually quite revolutionary, uh, and obviously there's been plenty of things that have um, been inspired and opened and done brilliant examples of that all day relaxed thing today. But it was pretty new uh, at the time, um, and again, uh, the you know the dining public in Melbourne just kind of got behind Movida in a really big way, and and it was lovely to watch. So for me, my first kind of hands-on uh, ownership experience in hospitality w was nothing but successful because of the people that we were involved with. The momentum of Movida was extraordinary to watch from the outside, let alone on the inside. What, what sort of the momentum, what did the momentum um, do to you and the impact that it had on you to do your own thing beyond that? Yeah, so um, I didn't I didn't play a hands-on working role. I was um, a, a partner in the business, but um, there was great talent in the kitchen and great talent front of house. Um, and so what we sort of did as, as other partners involved in the business was um, work with the guys to make sure that 
after the first couple of years of bedding in and getting things settled, that there was a bit of structure around the business and then started looking for other opportunities um, to what we could do with the, with the brand and the business. So while um, Frank and his hands-on kind of front of house partners ran Movita, um, the rest of us started talking to estate agents, property developers, to see what was around that we could continue to take some advantage of that momentum. Um, and we were able to do that much closer to home than anybody anticipated by um, taking over a, uh, an empty sandwich shop that ended up being, that was at the bottom of Hosier Lane on, on Flinders Street. Um, and imaginatively enough, it got called Movita Next Door because it kind of was. Um, but in the great tradition of some of the European cities like France, well, Paris in particular, and even Barcelona and places, it's not unusual for a hospitality operator to have a couple of different businesses that are quite close to each other that just offer subtly different things. Um, and we felt that, well, at, at the time, Movita was that crazy busy that it couldn't get in anyway without bookings, and we had all kinds of pressure points around, you know, should we try and shift to two seatings per night, which everybody felt really bad initially about trying to ask customers for a 6 or an 8.30 booking, but we rationalized it by saying that at least we got to say yes to more customers per night, you know, even if there was a bit of a hassle factor. Uh, you either do sort of 35-odd people on a wing and a prayer for the night and they can come whenever they like, or you can do 70 or 80 people, which satisfies more demand but has a few strings attached if you like you know so we were going through all those conversations but we thought gee it'd be kind of handy to have a holding bar or something like that where people we could say to people well you know why don't you um, rock up to Movita next door have a beer or a sherry or something and then uh, if we can fit you into Movita we'd love to do that um, and Frank and I actually went to Spain a couple of times and kind of walked around and experienced a few tapas bars and actually, you know, the idea of cooking um, even more in that style, I think Frank was super keen to do that. And uh, Movita Next Door actually just ended up with its own personality and its own energy and its own vibe uh, and became just a stand standalone success in its own right. Um and then I actually moved to Sydney because I ended up, I had a sort of a separate side hustle thing going on um, whilst Movita was growing because I wasn't working in it. Um, I was really, I was super interested in uh, organic produce and I was super interested in trying to make connections between primary producers who were in that space. Yeah, so in sort of 2000 and well, kind of, 2002 and three, while Movita was, well, was being put in place, I had a separate business called Food Gatherers. Um, and what we were doing with that was connecting with um, places like Flinders Island um, to see if we could try and create some kind of connection between produce off that place and restaurants on the mainland. We did a couple of fascinating dinners with Andrew McConnell and all kinds of people back then, sort of 20-odd years ago, um, we, we were sort of releasing retail branded products around organic butter and organic shortbreads, playing with small farmer single breed lambs out of central Victoria, um, just trying to tell stories and trying to make connections. Um, and one of, the, one of the really satisfying and lifelong friendship connections I made was with Anthony Baharich at Vic's Meat in sort of well, around about 2003 or four, I think, because I was helping uh, a couple of people, David Blackmore and Neil Prentice, both had really interesting Wagyu, um, which they were looking to try and find a route to market with back then. And we made a, through food gatherers, we made a connection with Anthony in Sydney, who was the, you know, the standout meat wholesaler post-Sydney Olympics, and I'd heard a lot of really good things about him. So we we made um, a couple of connections with Anthony about a number of different products that we were doing. Um, and I ended up actually moving to Sydney in 2004 to then kind of take up a position with Vixmeat, quite by chance, yeah, and ended up spending four 
really amazing and super satisfying years, which kind of felt like a totally natural progression for me, Anthony, because I know, you know, you, you and I have spoken in the past about, you know, the, the first kind of job I had in Australia where I was with Neil Perry at Rockpool in the um, mid to late nineties and the eye opening experience with Neil that the front page of his Rockpool menu was just this kind of dedicated list of primary producers that he acknowledged he couldn't do his thing without. And that resonated very deeply with me. And I think that probably informed the food gatherers approach very deeply. And then, connecting with Anthony and and his business being deeply rooted in connection with uh, primary producers and what they do and his opportunity to try and represent their products and their brands through his distribution channels. So it was kind of a very natural um, flow for me about the whole story of connection. Um, Even when I was living in London, uh, after Rockpool, but before Melbourne in, ni- in 1999 and 2000, I was working at Neil's Yard Dairy, you know, and one, which was a, an extraordinary place to spend time because the guy who created that, Randolph, uh, Randolph Hodgson, was kind of single-handedly responsible for reconnecting British Isles cheesemakers with the British public. Um, all of those cheeses had been kind of lost. Um, but Randolph was very keen to reconnect. So the stuff that the general public is aware of today, like Montgomery's cheddar and Quick's cheddar and uh, all this kind of stuff, that's really Randolph who... In... Um, was amazing. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of flowed through that whole early period for me. You said that you didn't get much wrong with Mavita in the early days. And so there weren't so many lessons learned. What, what, what mm. was it that made you um, start to explore your own restaurants and, and then were there stumbling blocks along the way with that? Yeah. So the first, um, the first real setbacks for me happened more with the food gatherer side of thing than the restaurant side of thing. Um, because um I think within that kind of pioneering space of trying to do something really different um, with such a nascent industry, um, you know, we there were a number of relationship failures and breakdowns during that period with people we were trying to connect to. And I think, you know, that, that business didn't last in the end because from the consumer point of view, there was a willingness to spend a little bit more on organic produce but not a whole lot more. Uh, and it was a pretty unsophisticated scene around branding. Uh, there was a little bit of um, well, a lack of trust around um, the connecting between a primary producer and a marketplace. Pe- people became very... Um, um, possessive of information, and we just—I got let down on several occasions by relationships that I thought were going to take us forward that just, for various reasons, failed. And you know, so from a personal point of view, sort of suffering the disappointment of having to end a business when you could just see on the horizon globally what was happening in the organic space, but realizing that. A, we were undercapitalized. We didn't have nearly enough money to kind of really make a firm position for ourselves. Um, and B, we were just too early. Just people didn't get it. Um, and the frustration and disappointment of realizing that other people are going to probably end up benefiting from it a great deal more than I will because our time had come to an end. But... <laughs> the opportunity hadn't, if that made sense. Um, and so, you know, you take some learnings away from that about the critical nature of timing, the critical nature of people and the relationships that you strike and the quality of those. Um, you know, because a great idea is a great idea, but, and they're actually a dime a dozen. But really nailing the idea and turning it into something successful takes a bunch more things. So... You know, I think that that disappointment and those failures um, inf- told me that what I needed to do was to make sure that I was forging really high-quality relationships with really good-quality people. Yeah, 
And so that's kind of been the foundational thing for me whenever I've tried to take step forwards to do new businesses uh, is, okay, first and foremost, have to invest in the person. Are they a good person? Are they somebody that I'm going to really feel satisfied um, to do something with? And if they are and the idea is good and compelling and we can find enough money to actually make it happen and, and not blow things up in the first couple of months, then let's go do it. But it's it's been people first for me ever since then, I would say. What was the first restaurant that you opened with this uh, with this approach? Um, I would say probably Lee Ho Fook and then Ides and now SPQR. Um, you know, you don't you don't meet uh, interesting people like Victor and Peter and Tom, my partner, and SVQR every day. But just something about uh, their deep commitment to their craft and what they're doing um, was super compelling for me. Do you have any stories of the first connections that you made with these people that, that, that made you realise that there was opportunity there? Uh, yeah, there's a good I mean, Peter Gunn. Peter probably wouldn't remember this, but I actually went to Attica for dinner um, as a guest during that restaurant uh, sort of restaurant Australia period where they were jetting in all kinds of influential people from around the world. And for some reason, I was asked to host a table uh, at Attica with, with some internationally interesting, cool people, actually. But uh, people who have been to Attica would remember back in the day, used to do a bit of a garden tour with the kitchen guys where they'd, and if you were really interested, you'd end up at Ripponlea, uh, having a bit of a wander around as part of your experience. And it started spitting with rain on our wander around with Ben. And this guy came wandering over from Attica with four umbrellas saying, oh, you know, it's kind of started raining. I thought you guys would, wouldn't mind uh, an umbrella. And that was Peter. Wow. Who I think, yeah, I think he was actually the sous chef at the time. And I remember thinking, gee, that's pretty considerate. Um, that's a pretty sort of uh, detailed kind of thing to think about for a couple of people wandering around Ripponlea. Um, and then I saw that he was doing some things on his own. He'd hung his own shingle out with Ides. And I remember Jemima Cody actually reviewing formally you know, a restaurant pop-up <laughs> in the paper for rides and sort of thinking, that's pretty interesting. I haven't seen that happen before and it sounds really interesting. So I booked myself a table um, to go uh, and um, took along my business partner at the time, Peter Bartholomew, and the two of us sat there and I kind of watched this night unfold where the, the guys in the kitchen did the majority of the food running um, and the front of house did all the wine and all the chit chat, but it was the kitchen deliberately delivering all their food. And I remember at one point, Peter um, Gunn arrived with a, I think it was a calamari dish that had some corn in it or something. And he's, <laughs> he put it down in front of us and he's like, look, I'm not sure if this is any good or not. It'd be really interesting to know what you think. And just kind of wandered off. <laughs> something to that effect. You know, and you sort of think you sort of think to yourself, I really haven't been in a hospitality environment for a long time, where it kind of felt like you're part and parcel of a kind of creative process, and an out and out actually quite fun and entertaining night. Um, and it was it was pretty good actually the dishes I remember. Um, and so, you know, Peter Gunn and I ended up having a couple of coffees and a few chats, and and you know, discussing what. Ides might look like if he had the opportunity to do it as a standalone business. Um, but yeah, it was, it, 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 it's, it's that connection where you think, gee, I, you know, it would be really great to be a part of bringing this experience um, into being as a permanent restaurant. That would be fun for people. Um, and he hasn't really lost that sense of adventure either, I don't think. What's been some of the challenges of, of sort of coming across this talent and creating the restaurants that you have with them, like Victor Leong and Peter Gunn, has, has there been challenges in that relationship in delivering what 
their promise is and what your vision is for them as well? Um, uh, yeah, any challenge that has been kind of presented with people like Victor and people like Peter, both of whom are, uh, in my opinion anyway, I consider, them so, I consider them to be artists whose medium is cooking, if that makes sense. Um, I remember as a tangent, just as an observation, I remember David Byrne, I think, talking heads, observing that um, he was an artist and that he he did a number of things. I think he went, he tried clothing first, then he tried painting, then he tried something else, and then he started writing music and singing. And he and he, he had this light bulb moment where he was like, ah, this is how I get to express myself as an artist is by singing. I didn't realise, but you know, it took him five or six goes at five or six different mediums before he figured out that being an artist for him meant singing songs and and uh, shooting amazing album covers and all the rest of it. And, I, you know, so I think for, for Victor and for Peter, I see them as, as artists who get to express themselves through their cooking process. Um, and so it's like anything, I suppose, there's a sort of, a, there's the overarching conversation of, well, let's not go broke pursuing... <laughs> you know, everybody's dream here because there's nothing like a sustainable business for you to continue practicing your art for as long as you want to. Um, so there's, you know, there's general conversations about that. There's conversations about um, the relentless fatigue of creativity. So in the early days, um, uh, Pete, particularly at Ides, was really keen to try and change the menu as often as possible. And you sort of, you know, you, you want to respect all of that and understand that that's the, that's the artist at work going on. I'm not satisfied with that. I want to change that. I'm bored with that. I need to do this. But at some point that becomes fatiguing. Uh, and at some point too, restaurant customers um, start to fall in love with certain dishes or certain things that a restaurant stands for. Um, you know, some people might call them a signature dish or something. Um, and in some ways, you've got to come to a decision at some point where you say, well, you know, do we want to become a restaurant where customers have kind of pre-ordered in their head already what they want and that's why they're coming here? Or do we want to be a restaurant where it's this relentless drive for creativity um, and that's what customers are coming for is a sense of unknown and a sense of adventure? Or is there something in the middle? And, you know, you'll see a lot of restaurants will settle on a menu that stays largely the same, but then will change uh, dishes in the makeup of the menu, perhaps. Uh, some restaurants don't change at all. Um, you know, back in the to Movita for a minute, um, you know, the classic uh, toast with smoked tomato sorbet with a beautiful anchovy laid across the top, that will never come off the menu. Um, as much as the kitchen are probably way beyond bored making smoked tomato sorbet. But, you know, people go there because they, they want their fix of that. Um, I don't know whether the record's been broken since I was there, but I think some guy came in and had 26 of them or something one time, which was something of a record for an anchovy fiend. Um, but, you know, but you can create a whole cult kind of, thing around let's go to Movita, we'll have a few of those anchovy things and then figure out what else we want to eat. Um, and so there's there's those sorts of conversations um, and then there's the business conversations just to make sure that what you're doing is sustainable. Um, and when you meet people like Victor and Peter both um, who are able to both uh, construct really great menus, but they also understand the process of sitting down and shaping a business around it to make sure that, you know, the nuts and bolts, are the portion sizes, the costing, the wastage, the tension between a customer being asked to pay $180 for the dinner um, and giving them just enough uh, of the rock and roll ingredient that they feel satisfied with the menu charge, um, there's a there's a chef I know who I'm not involved with in business, but he was telling me the other day, and he set his menu price, um, and the customers come in, and the the one course that they kind of question the most is this cabbage course that he offers, 
um, which he's that's the course that he's probably most proud of and that takes him the most time. It takes him like five days or something of to get this cabbage dish right. But it's the one that he gets the most comments about, oh, I didn't expect to get cabbage, you know, in my, my $180 degustation. Um, and, you know, you sort of say, well, you know, do you need to switch that course out for a piece of marin that you do nothing to? <laughs> you know, because uh, there's, there's so much conversation that still needs to go on with a customer about understanding, okay, it's a cabbage, but it took me five days to get it this delicious. That's a lot of time. Or here's a premium piece of produce that I've effectively done nothing to, um, but maybe that makes you happy that you are eating this primary, this premium bit of produce, or you know, and maybe there's a balance somewhere in the middle. Um, but you know, just getting, I guess, just lining up all of those dots to make sure that you're creatively satisfied, but that that there's a bit of structure in place too. This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy, helping managers and staff do their best work. At Deputy, we're on a mission. We're on a mission to simplify shift work for every cafe, every restaurant, every bar, every business owner, every dishy, every waiter, every cook, every sous chef. This is the industry that will thrive with Deputy. For more information, go to deputy.com. Your venues go from very casual to, you know, the very pointy end. Um, is there, are, there, are there similar biz, uh, business pain points across all of your venues that you need to keep an eye on? Well, um, the challenge with pizza is there's a lot of pizza in the marketplaces, but we didn't want to just do pizza for the hell of doing pizza. If we were going to do pizza, we wanted to do a really awesome version of pizza. So of course we went down the rabbit hole, um, with sourdough, um, with, uh, starters, with mother cultures, with 48 hours of fermentation. Um, and then, uh, meeting people's expectations around well, how much can you possibly charge for pizza? Um, what else do you put on your menu? How quickly can you have, can you get people in and out uh, of your venue? So, it, you know, those sorts of more casual things actually become a bit more of a numbers game. Um, whereas the pointy end is not a numbers game. It's, it's a complete uh, experience game, not to discount the experience of pizza. Cause you know, we have, <laughs> there's a DJ in the corner playing music and there's street art everywhere. So there's an experience there too, but it, it's, it's one experience where you're sort of hustling a pre-theater crowd, um, doing what you can to make everybody happy. And then the dinner service that follows the pre-theater as opposed to the, okay, there's 35 people coming in tonight. They are basically going to be the people that we care for, for the whole three or four hours of the night. Um, they're completely different propositions um, that, that present their own unique kind of challenges, I guess. These All these different uh, restaurant offerings that you've created, um, has, it, has there been moments um, when you've realised, yes, we've, we've got this right? And is, is that at a certain sort of time in the business's life cycle, like once the wheels are in motion? Is there is there something familiar in that? Um you, I, I think anybody listening to this conversation today who is in the hospitality industry and perhaps owns their own business and has had that moment where, you know, if they're a chef owner operator and they look out across and they can look out across their dining room, or if they're a front of house person and they can walk through their dining room and they just feel this energy there's a there's a, a level of conversation that's going on with your customers or sort of satisfying satisfying flow of food coming and going uh, in the modern world the phone doesn't ring as often with bookings because they magically pop up through you know online reservations and one thing and another so you don't quite get the same buzz of a phone ringing off the hook so to speak but you get the satisfaction of looking at your forward bookings and thinking you know gosh there's there's some demand out there that that people are wanting to secure a spot a few weeks 
away from today. Um, there is that ma magic moment in the dining room where the energy is there and you sort of think to yourself, I think we might have created something that people want to be a part of uh, and just like like to be uh, experiencing with their friends and family and, and whatever. That, that's a satisfying moment where you can kind of tick something off and think, I think we've largely got this right. Um, I have to kind of stay on top of it to make sure it doesn't change all of a sudden or you don't kind of ruin it. But you sort of think to yourself, hmm, yep, this is this is nice, this is fun, this is satisfying. Uh, uh, you, you might even stand there and think to yourself, you know what, if, I, if this wasn't a restaurant that I owned, I'd love to come to it. You know, you sort of think this is the sort of place I'd like to just walk into. If I was a tourist in Melbourne and I happened upon this joint, gee, I'd be really pleased to sit down and have some food here. Uh, you know, because I think we're all familiar with that in our travels um, where you might experience something a little unexpected, but you sit down and you just pick up very quickly on the energy of the place and you think, oh, I think we're, this is going to be all right. Uh, this is going to be good. You know, it's going to be one of those memorable meals uh, that you get to tell friends about when you get back. Um, and if you get a little twinge of that in your own business, that's super nice. We had a chat about a year ago and you talked about the importance of technology in the industry now and the role that it may play moving forward. Has it, has yeah. it changed the industry a bit and what's the opportunities with technology for the industry at the moment? Uh, look, I think it's absolutely changed the industry mostly for the better. Um, you know, I, I, I remember the early phone calls probably 10 years ago now where um, people started reaching out to restaurants saying, hey, uh, we've developed this new business that allows people to book tables on the internet. And, you know, we were like, who the hell wants to do that? You know, like, why, why don't you just ring up? Or if you want to go to a restaurant, just ring up and, you know, make a booking. Um, but that, that was transformative um, from a piece of technology that just flat out made it simpler for, customers to do that piece of procedure the dark side of course made it easy for them to just cancel without any of the emotional um, cost of cancelling uh, and then we went through that phase and that phenomenon of people booking multiple restaurants online and then on the day deciding which one to go to and just kind of cancelling the other three so you know that that piece of technology came with some costs to the industry i think um and in more recent times people started to get their heads around that a little bit um and, and today i think without question the the time saving uh, pieces of technology such as the time and attendance and rostering technology the way that feeds into largely cloud-based pieces of accounting software um, the way that you can kind of create deeper and more meaningful bits of data around customers and their preferences by linking um, point-of-sale systems to reservation and profile systems. Um, that's all I mean, hugely to the good. Um, and then, you know, it's going to be really, really fascinating, I think, to see what everybody decides to use QR codes for. Um, you know, because the general public now is, is very, very accustomed to QR codes. They were a sort of a niche curiosity five years ago. I vaguely remember some guys saying, oh, you know, have you thought about using QR codes to launch, you know, short videos? Or we used to go around the National Gallery of Victoria and they'd have QR codes under a piece of art. And, you know, you'd be like, ooh, let's learn more about the artist uh, by hitting that QR code. And you have to download a random app QR code scanner thing or something, you know, but now um, that piece of technology has transformed restaurants and other retail places into um, confirmed safe places for vaccinated people. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Uh, and, and to what extent those QR codes, now that everyone's used to them, what else can they be used for in the dining environment? Obviously, there are online ordering 
platforms where you can come in and, and either hit a QR code or hold your phone over a um, over a, a piece of Wi-Fi tech and it launches menus. We've seen those um, become commonplace much more in the kind of high turnover, kill the queue, um, you know, casual places. You know, I, I can't personally see a role for that kind of technology in the more fine dining environments where your interaction with the front of house staff is much longer and deeper and richer and more involved. Um, but they have their place. Um, and, uh, you know, as the current prime minister might observe, uh, there's so much new technology yet to be invented that will solve everything, <laughs> including climate change. So, you know, who knows what the guys out there will come up with in the future. But for me as an operator, the stuff that makes uh, the stuff that makes sense are the things that streamline and simplify. So, you know, um, the human, the, the the HR stuff, the time and attendance, the signing on, the way that integrates to accounting platforms, all those sort of things, they're transformative because it's easy for staff, it's easy for record keeping, um, and it uh, and it allows you to spend a bit more time on your guest experience and a bit less time chasing people up to see whether they filled out their timesheet for the week or not, for example. The last uh, year and a half to two years have been incredibly challenging, um, but often from adversity there are opportunities. What's changed about the hospitality sector and, and what do you think it will look like as we move forward? Well, in order to qualify for JobKeeper in March, April 2020, um, you needed to be up to date with your BAS and you needed to... Um, uh, have a few things reconciled. And I think that was an initial hurdle that a few operators in the hospitality industry uh, failed to make. And as a result, they some of them disappeared. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would like to think that there are that there are fewer operators who were operating on a completely unfair and unreasonable um, playing field against other operators who were looking to make sure that their entire business was being managed correctly. Uh, so in a, in a sense, the pandemic's had a bit of a clean-up effect on the industry in that regard. That gives, that gives To me, that gives opportunities for uh, the hospitality industry to become ever-increasingly professional, ever-increasingly um, proud of its legitimacy as a genuine professional industry that people should proudly look at being involved in either as an employee or as a business owner and saying it is entirely possible to run a hospitality business uh, correctly, legitimately, legally, completely compliant and profitable. Uh, and, and that's crucial because um, if a compliant business is losing business to a non-compliant business, that's not fair. That is not, that's not competing by saying my coffee is more delicious than your coffee. That's competing by saying business A is paying the correct wages and remitting all their taxes and all the rest of it, and the other one's not. And as a result, you know, they're able to compete on a whole different level. And, that doesn't do anybody any favours. It, it continues to erode um, the standing of the industry as a professional uh, undertaking. And so, you know, if, if a few of those guys um, have been moved to the side, then the opportunity, the clear and present opportunity, is for really legitimately high quality and good operators to fill the gap. Uh, if business A and business B are both doing the right thing and are ready to compete on the quality of experience and the quality of food and hospitality, fantastic, bring that on. Um, that is the best possible kind of competition, which at the end of the day is going to give the customer the best and most rewarding experience. Um, you know, unfortunately, Anthony, I walk around Melbourne City, as I often do every few days, go for a bit of a wander around, and there's an awful lot of businesses that are still closed. Um, but, you know, depending on your point of view, that also presents an opportunity, too, for people to think, well, uh, perhaps it might be time for me to take the step 
and have a, a go at my own vision, my own business, my own dream. So those opportunities are there. Just don't do, just don't do it undercapitalized. My God, it's too painful. You've been a part of some of the most important uh, restaurants in Australia's history. What, what sort of business advice can you share for people looking to get into the game or that just need some help right now? Um, yeah. If you're starting out, um, it, I've made this mistake a couple of times, several times, and uh, I hope not to make it again, but uh, sometimes you can get very excited and get things underway and not be, not have sufficient capital to take advantage of your opportunity. And by that I mean it's going to take a few months to get the wheels turning. There's a lot of things you've got to buy up front. There's a few unexpected costs you've got to meet along the way. Um, you probably need to start out with more staff than you ultimately need. Uh, and it might take a year to really settle in and find your groove and your profitability. And uh, I've experienced a couple of times, and I've certainly seen it happen a couple of times, where if a new business is created and it's not sufficiently capitalized, then it can fall over before it gets the chance to really um, to really find its groove and, and take its first really good strong steps forward. So, you know, um, the wing and a prayer, let's have a crack version of hospitality. I, I, I think it's too risky today. Um, um, what else would I say? I'm a massive fan of getting legal advice and getting legal advice early. Um, I think we've discussed this before in other forums, but, you know, getting a heads of agreement from an agent, those things are in, in, in many ways a legally binding document. If you don't review that document accurately and probably get a lawyer to read it, the content of that is exactly what your lease then gets framed around and it's very hard to change key parts of the lease if you've already agreed those terms and ahead of agreement so um, I would tend to suggest to people um, who are venturing forth into their first business for themselves that uh, um, to go early on some really good quality legal advice because you know, a review of a heads of agreement might cost you $1,000, maybe $1,500 with a lawyer. But what you're effectively doing by signing a lease is signing yourself up for quite a considerable debt. It's a promise. Um, if you've been given a 10-year lease on a space at $100,000 a year rent, what you're really doing is taking on a million dollars worth of debt, in effect you're promising to pay that landlord a million bucks over the term of that contract. And, you know, I've increasingly decided that legal fees of $2,000 with a lawyer to review a million dollar debt contract is cheap <laughs> because, because there's things in a lease um, that no matter how many times you read them, you know, you think, you know, that, clauses in there again uh, or that the lawyer just the lawyer is is the third party that their job is to say uh, as this lease is currently written or as this head of agreement is currently written I cannot let you sign it I just you can't sign that and if the other side is not prepared to make some concessions such that you're then prepared to sign it you got to walk away say well thank you very much but that's not for me because you know the, the consequences are considerable um, and it's a thing for people to be a bit mindful of because there'll be plenty of opportunities as we've just discussed there's going to be plenty of uh, tenancies available to inspect um, you know I was helping a friend this morning I was having a read of a head of agreement for an agent and you know the head of agreement they wanted the lease to start on well basically Monday next week you know, you're like, how does that work in anybody's world? That, And then there was all sorts of things that flowed on from that date. Now, if you're not careful and you just sign that thing and send it back, well, you know, the clock starts ticking from Monday. 
um, which it just it, it's I would say just it's it's never too early for a bit of professional advice. What's been your proudest moment over your career? You've been involved in so many incredible projects. What is it that drives you, and, and what's given you the greatest joy? Hmm. Um, well, uh, I uh, look. My one of the early influences for me was my dad, who took over cooking in our family when I was about eight or nine years old. My mum went to work at a night job to make enough money so I could go to America with my cousin as an eight-year-old. And I kind of, um, you know, I watched my dad. He's a secondary school teacher, and he'd come home, and uh, he decided that food and cooking would be a pleasure for him. Uh, if he was going to cook dinner for the family, he'd kind of get into it and enjoy it. Uh, and I watched, you know, as a 9, 11-year-old. Actually, I don't think my mum has actually cooked since 1979 <laughs> my my dad just decided he really enjoyed it he loved it um and i think that probably as i reflect on it had a really quite a tangible and deep impact on me because i saw my dad just really enjoying that process of cooking and i and it certainly influenced me to this very day uh, i get nothing i get there's nothing that gives me more enjoyment and pleasure than whether it's at home you know, on a Sunday with friends and family or in the hospitality setting, there's nothing that gives you more pleasure than providing a really enjoyable, relaxed environment for people to just relax, have something nice to drink, have something nice to eat, and just engage in conversation with people around them. Um, and I think you're either a person who takes tremendous satisfaction and pride from that or you're not. Um, and, but it works for me in a big way. I find it really rewarding and super enjoyable. So um, the, the, the things that I take from hospitality um, and having lived quite a while in it, in the industries, I never fail um, to experience real satisfaction when you see people enjoying your offering of hospitality. That, that's, that's a really lovely buzz. I think that's a big reason why people do it. Um, that connection's priceless, really. Well, the connections that you've delivered with all of the people that you've collaborated with have impacted on so many people's lives. We could probably record a 10-part series with you, Dave, but we've loved having you on uh, the luminaries today to hear just a bit of your story. Uh, please keep in touch, and uh, we'll definitely have to catch up again soon. That's always a pleasure to speak with you, Anthony. Thanks for the opportunity again. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.